Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Barder from the Centre for Global Development, and my guest today is Angus Deaton, Professor of Economics and International Affairs at Princeton University. Professor Deaton is renowned in development economics for his careful analysis and use of data, and his book, The Analysis of Household Surveys, is the handbook for every student and investigator using survey data. I'm with Professor Deaton in Princeton to talk to him about his new book, The Great Escape, Health, Wealth and the Origins of Inequality. Professor Deaton, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you, it's terrific to be here. So your, your book is in three parts and we're going to take each in turn. The first is about health, um, which you've chosen as a, as a dimension of well-being. The second is about money and inequality and the third Perhaps the most controversial part is about foreign aid and whether that's helping or not. So let's start with your discussion of um, uh, money, happiness and well-being and that nexus of ideas. Tell us, tell us why they're different or, or why you've chosen to, to treat health uh, differently from the way we look at money, for example. Okay, so I think that... Um I think of well-being as the central concept, except it's not entirely clear what it is, and different people have different views of what well-being is. So I would tend to take a Sen-like view of capabilities and so on. So there's a bunch of things that enable you to live the sort of life that you'd like to live. And that seems to me sort of the central concept. Um, in the book, I deal with two out of a whole bunch of those things that are really important, um, and those two, I think, are very important. Um, one is material well-being, or money, as you put it, um, and the other is health, and without being alive, you can't enjoy anything else very much, um, and being sick obviously compromises everything. So I tend to think of those as the two of the most important components of well-being, um, but they're certainly not the only ones. So you draw, you draw an interesting distinction between well-being and happiness, right? Um, which I wasn't expecting. Um, it, it's we often talk about the Easterlin paradox, the, the distinction between you know, the idea that people don't seem to get happier as they get richer. You are drawing a distinction between well-being and happiness as well. Well, potentially I am. Um, I, I don't think I really take a firm position. Um, on that, but I certainly don't commit myself to the idea that well-being and happiness are the same, same thing. Um, one of the problems with happiness is that um, there are many different kinds or measures of happiness. So there's a sort of short-term thing, which is you feel really happy right now, or you feel unhappy, or you feel bored or something. There's a sort of experiential short-term thing. Mm -hmm. But the sense in which Easterlin is using happiness is much more um, some sort of view of how your life is going. Um, and that's really different. So how your life is going is much more a cognitive thing that people reflect on and they think how their life is going. And it's different from, you know, being happy at the moment. Right. So to give you an example, um, you could have an elderly relative whose funeral you've gone to and you're very sad, so you're not happy at all. But if someone asks you if your life is going well, Right. Your life could be going very well indeed. So what relation those take to well-being in the sen sense, or this broader sense, is not entirely clear. So well-being for you is a more multidimensional... Yeah, I, I, I think that people's life satisfaction or their evaluation of their life is probably fairly close 
to a broad measure of well-being. And it responds to money, it responds to health, it responds to how many friends you have, how much time you spend with them, lots of things like that. But there are things it may not respond to at all, and I think that work still remains to be done. Uh, in particular, I mean, I, these are the topics I don't really deal with in the book, which would have made the book much longer, but I think you know, civic participation and living right. something close to democracy is very important. Right. Um, education is incredibly important, and I don't talk a lot about education. I was surprised you picked health as the kind of primus inter pares of different dimensions of well-being, because certainly in a lot of surveys of poor people, they start off by saying that security, physical security, mm -hmm. not, not getting killed when they go out at night, comes high up. And we, from the outside, tend to think of health as being what, what we would want if we were them. But that's often not true when you ask poor people in poor countries. Yeah, no, I, I realise that. I've done some of that work myself. I, mean, I work with um, Gallup, who collect those data all over Africa, for instance. And it's somewhat of a paradox. I mean, one of your colleagues at the Center for Global Development, I saw, just wrote a piece um, on this, um, which is, you know, we switched aid much more towards health right. at a time when you ask people what they want, and that's the opposite of what they right. want, by and large. And I don't really know what to make of that. I mean, I think, after all, if you believe in aid, which I really sort of don't, then I think the donors are entitled to have some say over how their money is spent. Um, so I don't think we have to line it up right. with, with what people say. Um, people might be wrong. Right. Um, I think one of the issues in Africa is probably that um, you know morbidity has been high in Africa for all of human history. Mm. Um, men and microbes co-evolved there and have coexisted for a very, very long time. And so it may just be seen as a background Right, condition. Right. They don't have aspirations yeah. for tackling health in the same way. And there's not a realization that um, anything can be done about it, um, let alone that governments can do anything about it. Um, uh, on the Easterland paradox itself, the idea that there isn't a strong relationship between money, income, and life evaluation, life evaluation, Let's not call it happiness, yeah. some kind of well-being. Yeah. Um, your the recent work has suggested that it's a statistical artifact. I think the most careful work, though they're clearly very oppositional about it, is by um, Wolfers and Stevenson, and they're suggesting that Easterner is just wrong. I mean, that the day that he's not handling his data properly, he's putting a huge amount of weight on China. The Chinese data are not comparable over time. The early data were drawn from the upper classes, educated people, the later data from the whole population. So I don't really want to get into that argument, um, but if I had to put my money on one of them being right, I'd put it on, on, Wolfers. Uh, on Wolfers and Stevenson. So yeah. you think there is quite a strong correlation yes. between you know, the, the richer you are in, in terms of income, your life, other, other dimensions yeah. of your no, life. No, if, if you ask people's life evaluation and you do a plot across countries, um, and I do that in the book, um, if, you, if you plot log GDP per head on one axis and you plot average life evaluation on the other, it's a straight line. Right. Good. Um, okay. So you're, you're, you're not in the, um, there's, more, there's much more important things to life than money camp. Than well, I am. No, 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 wait a minute. That's different. Um, um, Go on. Well, one of the most important things is health for a start. I mean, for instance, if you're dead, having any amount of money is not going to help you very much. So... Um, I'm, I'm certainly, money is way, way, way too narrow, 
right. right. And that's sort of one of the great attractions of the well-being things and why Easterlin is such a great pioneer in this, which is to say, you know, and, and there's no difference between San and Easterlin on that issue, which is, you know, we shouldn't be looking just at money um, because all these other things are important in their own right, right and not just as means to attaining something else. So, you know, you might interpret some of what Jeff Sachs used to write, for instance, as saying the reason for focusing on health is because it promotes economic growth. Well, that may or may not be true. I don't think it's true, but it may or may not be true. And but there's a very good reason for being interested in health, completely right. independent of what's happening. So let's get on to health. Okay. And you have a very interesting diagram in the book that plots, just as you've just described, for well-being and income, health measured as life expectancy in this case mm-hmm. against income, and um, you get a, a fairly regular relationship. Yeah. And strikingly, you. I mean, you know, one of the things that that isn't immediately obvious, but when you look carefully at the axes, is how big uh, the global differences are, both in income on the x-axis and right. in health on the y-axis. So, you know, there seems to be very large variations in health, which are correlated with very large variations in income. Correct. So why do we need to think about health separately from income? If, if, if um, oh, because if, first of all, the correlation is far from perfect. Okay. Um, so, you know, there are lots of countries that have extraordinarily good health in spite of very low income. Um, and, you know, those have been part of the development discourse for decades. And there are other countries like the United States that have right. lousy Way health right. um, relative to its income level. So they're certainly not the same thing. And it, for many people, those deviations from that curve is where the policy really is. Right. So, you know, if you're Countries should be aspiring to get to that frontier in some sense. Yeah. And also remember, correlation is not causation. And there are spectacular episodes in the history of health in which those two things do not go together. So one of the most important examples is China after 1975. I mean, you get this enormous upturn in economic growth and health (laughs) sort of grinds to a halt. Um, and just basically because they completely reallocated resources. Right. Um, and another great example is, um, you know, immediately after the Second World War, when antibiotics and the germ theory of disease came to Africa, um, even in countries that were seeing no economic growth at all, um, there were big improvements right. um, in infant and child mortality rates, for example. So I think let's let's try and explain this the Sam Preston curves yep. which you describe in the book. So one of the interesting things is that where that curve is linking income and health has itself moved over time. Right. So uh, for any given level of income we now have higher levels of health than right. we, so that, we would have done 100 years ago at that level of income. Exactly. Um, it's not clear that's moved up equally evenly over time and people who've looked at sub-periods you know, don't necessarily right. find as much. But that's what I was sort of saying. I mean, the West African example is an example of that. I mean, even though there was very little economic growth, you got big health improvements. And Preston attributed that to technology. I mean, I think that's a bit simple, but nevertheless, that seems a good start. Well, so it's, let's, let's say a bit more about what you think it is, Eugene. So this is, this is the improvements in health you get, irrespective of whether you're, you've become richer. So this isn't because I'm wealthier so I can afford a better doctor or more medicines or more surgery. This is something else has changed in my environment. So either technology has changed, we know more, 
or there's some other set of things that are determining my health, like you know whether I have sanitation or um, yeah. So that's the obvious thing. I mean, I think it's certainly at low levels of income and historically in countries that are now rich, the major determinants of health had very little to do with the medical profession. Right. I think that's something that's happening to us now, and even now among us, that's not all of it. So these public health things, things that you cannot do for yourself, right. like clearing up swamps, vector control, you know, understanding the germ theory of disease, um, sanitation, clean water, those things are just very, very important. And those are things, and this takes us back to your question about the income side. You know, many of those things take income to make them happen, but there's no guarantee that with income they will right. happen. Um, because in many cases, and sanitation being the, the perhaps the prime example, you can't do this for yourself. Um, you know, this is something that requires collective right. action. Right. And, and that's the missing thing in the story that it's all income sort of right. idea. Because, you know, either the government or in some form of people acting collectively have to do this thing. But you would expect there to be quite a strong relationship between ha having sufficient collective action to deliver, say, decent sanitation and having sufficient collective action to deliver a functioning economy, you know, yeah, I do. enforcing contracts and, you know... I think that level of state capacity is very important for both for of those things. things. For so both of those things. So, in some sense, government is driving both an improvement in the economy and an improvement in public health. And those are related, but they might have a common cause rather than one causing the other. Yeah, though it's not entirely clear whether we're talking about levels or rates of growth here. For instance, right. you could tell a story in which state capacity is important for economic growth because it gives the legal framework in which innovation can take place and all those right. sort of things. And state capacity is good for the level of health. And in fact, the data look actually more like that than they look on a level on level or changes right. on changes. When you look at the Preston curve, um, the first thing economists tend to think about is, you know, there's this strong correlation right. here. Maybe it's really income that's driving health. And people often go beyond that and say, at low incomes, there's this very strong effect of income. High incomes, it's not it's much weaker and right. people go beyond that and tend to flatline the top and say there's no relationship at all though as soon as you go on a log scale right you, you can tell that's not true but the correlation and causation issue is only part of why that's interesting and i think another big part of that story um is when you're thinking about well-being when you do it in multiple dimensions you get a very much bleaker picture right. of global inequality than you get if you do it one thing at a time. Because, the, because all the different dimensions of inequality are highly correlated with each other right? for one reason or another. And so like and if so, you did education, if you did right. democracy, if you did all these other things. So people who are deprived in one dimension are, are very often deprived in every yeah, dimension. Exactly. So there's this sort of cumulative horror right. of being poor. Right. Um, which is not captured by looking at income poverty, for instance. I want to ask about the inequality point in a second, but uh, can we just tease out? I, I didn't feel you were, you nailed your colours to the mast, uh, perhaps characteristically, about <laughs> the extent to which technology and knowledge are driving the shift in the Preston curve and the oh, extent to yeah. which this is social organisation and collective action on things like sanitation. So how, how much are you buying the, 
the knowledge and technology. Oh, I think I buy pretty totally into that. Um, so I'm sorry if that's not as clear in the book as I meant it to be. There's two things you have to be careful about, though. One is you can't take that as an exogenous force like manna from heaven, mm -hmm. just dropping things on us. Right. And, you know, those things respond to right. things in the environment. So, you know, you could make a perfectly plausible case that the germ theory of disease, which may be one of the greatest theoretical discoveries to benefit mankind, um, would not really have been discovered without the cholera epidemics right. in the 19th century. So the need for something is a very powerful force right. um, for discovery. Of course, there's no guarantee. <laughs> right, and you still have to have a society rich enough to be able to well, invest in Well, it may not be. I mean, washing your hands doesn't cost a lot of money, right. you know. And in fact, when, when the sanitarians invested in, you know, hugely expensive sanitation works, they had no idea what they were doing. Right. I mean, it was right. largely done irrespective of the game germ theory. And it may not have been a very cost-effective solution. Right. You know, they might have been much better cleaning up the water supply. Okay, so, so that then raises the question of why the poorest countries, if, 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 you're, if you're saying it is a lot to do with technology, technology and knowledge, then we're left with the conundrum about why poor countries well, aren't catching think, up faster. Yeah, no, we, well, but I think we've already talked about the clue to that. So the science gives you the possibility, right. but some of that science can be very cheaply um, put into place. Right. Um, like washing hands, for right. instance, or people quitting smoking. I mean, it, it's not cheap, but it doesn't require the government to do anything. I mean, it, it requires people to change their behavior, and that can be very difficult and take a long time. Um, but some of that knowledge um, requires complementary factors right. to be put in place. And a lot of that is government capacity. So an example right. is you, you, a vaccine may, may be very cheap, but you need a network of health clinics that, with exactly. people who can administer the vaccine, right. which isn't that expensive, but requires a certain amount of, uh, of ability of a government system. Right. Is, that, is that your... No, that, that's exactly what I think. I've been very influenced, I think, on this by you know, some of the terrific work that's come out of the World Bank. Mm -hmm. um, on health in India and around the world, the stuff that Lyle Pritchett and Jeff Hammer and Jishnu Das and people have done. So, you know, you've got this, um, you've got a very lively private sector. Um, you've got actually a pretty well-trained public sector in that you can't be a public sector doctor in India without actually a formal medical degree. And yet both of those are completely dysfunctional, not completely, but very, right. very poorly functioning. Right. And partly that's because the state does not have the capacity to deliver health care itself through the public sector, nor does it is have the capacity to regulate the private sector in a way that would make the private sector work in a pretty right. uh, good way. That said, delivering health care is a really hard problem. We don't exactly do a great job of it here. Um, and in Britain, where they probably do a better job, it's a perennial subject right. of complaint and all the rest of it. So, um, you know, this is a really hard problem. So you don't want to say, you know, it's because these governments are a catastrophe. Um, but I think those things, and, and, you know, so the state capacity is a complementary factor in implementing the technologies. Now, some of these technologies are just, very easy. You know, when hand calculators appeared, right. they were all over India 10 minutes later. You know, but if you invent a nuclear power station or something, they don't spring up all over India. Right, right, right. Yeah. okay.
So, um, and just um, finally on health, on the health inequality issue, um, uh, in a sense, this is, and this is the same with income, what, what we're seeing is some countries making the great escape. They have the combination of technology and social infrastructure to implement that technology that is reducing especially child mortality mm-hmm. and infant mortality. Um, and other countries that don't yet, perhaps they have access to the technology, but they don't yet have the institutions to implement it. And so you're getting a rise um, globally of health inequality. Um, it depends how you measure it, but yes, okay. I agree with that statement in general. I, and the thing is, if, you, if you're if you fixated on life expectancy, which I think is a bit of a problem in this literature, then saving a child's life has a much bigger effect right. on life expectancy than saving an adult's life. So on that measure, we should expect to see quite a big closing of the gap, yes. because in rich countries, we're now all we about to say we've pretty much saved... All the very, kids very few kids die. Yes, and what we're doing now is reducing more, morbidity at, at, for older people. Right, but I've tried to avoid those convergence concepts because convergence is not a very well-defined object, right. and you know I'd have to get more technical than I am in the book to explain exactly why that's the case. But for instance, you can have a world in which mortality rates are not converging across countries at all. But life expectancy right. is converging across right. countries. And there's been a tendency, sort of on the right in global health, to argue that there's been a massive reduction in health inequality around the world based on life expectancy. But if you did that on mortality rates, you wouldn't see it. So w- would I be putting words into your mouth to say that you know, the, the issue is not the inequality between rich countries and poor countries, but the fact that poor countries haven't yet implemented the known available technologies that would prevent children from dying. I agree with the last part of the statement. Well, I I agree with the sentiment, I think, but I wouldn't want to be on record as saying that global health inequality is not a problem, because it clearly is a problem. I mean, and that, you know, the fact that children are dying um, by the accident of where they're born seems to be a major scandal to me and something that the world ought to be better organized to do something about. So I think it's a huge problem. You know, if children were dying in poor countries and they died at the same rate in rich countries, you would say, okay, maybe there isn't anything that you can do about it. You know, and and if you go back to Britain before about 1750, the children of the dukes and aristocrats died at about the same rate right. as the children of the ordinary people. And that's because no one knew any better. There right. wasn't any inequality. You know. and, and it was really when they started to tackle smallpox that that... Well, that's, that's the argument. But that's that, a yeah. controversial argument in the literature, but that seems to me the best case that's been made. You know. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, from the Centre for Global Development. My guest today is Angus Deaton, Professor of Economics and International Affairs at Princeton University, and we're talking about his book, The Great Escape. In the first section, we've been talking about health, and we're coming on now to a discussion about inequality of income. In the final section, we'll be talking about Professor Deaton's views about what's wrong with foreign aid. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy the Global Prosperity Wonkcast, hosted by my colleague Lawrence MacDonald. You can find both Development Drums and the Global Prosperity Wonkast on the CGD website, on iTunes and Stitcher, and on all other reputable sources of podcast downloads. A 
let's let's move now from health to income. Okay. Um, where um, you know this is the famous great divergence that in some parts of the world um, incomes began to rise in the 18th century and move very quickly, and incomes in other parts of the world didn't rise very quickly. Now, what's your view about that kind of inequality? So is your view now that inequality around the world is increasing as, um, because it's increasing between countries, or is it that inequality is reducing as we see China and India closing the gap on, mm-hmm. on North America and Europe? So uh, this is, I'm afraid, going to be a slightly complicated answer. But let me restate the premise a little bit, which is the great divergence is about sustained growth because there had been growth before, uh, especially, you know, in periods in China, for example, when there was enormous prosperity for a brief period of time. And it was always brought down, um, often by politics, and you could even argue by inequality, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So that um, you know the people who were in charge choked off right. growth because it threatened them, and you know the Asimov and Johnson book mm-hmm. tells that story um, very well. Um, so it's the sustained growth, and I don't think it was all that fast. I mean, I, I don't know if you know the history of these studies of the Industrial Revolution, but that history seems to be largely revising down the growth rates until there's almost nothing left. But nevertheless, over a long period of time there obviously was this great divergence. Um, I also think that great divergence is the roots or is the root of the global inequality that we see today. So then the second part of your question is is the harder one, which is, you know, what do we think is actually happening now? Mm. Um, so we know that India and China are growing very fast. We know there are a lot of people right. <laughs> in India and China. So you've got a very large chunk of humanity, I mean, I'm at two and a half billion people, who are sort of moving up. Right, they're kind of moving from the back of the race towards, towards the, the middle, middle of the race. Right. Right. So I think those facts are all true. <laughs> right. right? Um, now, when you want to put it together <clears throat> into some sort of overall measure of, you know, is the Pope right that world inequality is right. <laughs> getting worse? He's infallible, so <laughs> he must be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, or is the American Enterprise Institute right when it says that global inequality is actually falling? I actually think that, and one of the points I try to make in the book is that the data on that are weaker than we think. Right. Um, and that making these international comparisons and in particular correcting for prices across countries, is a much more hazardous and right. error-ridden process than people tend to give it credit for. Say something more about that, because there, I mean, there are two parts to that. One is that it's conceptually hard to know how yes. you compare consumption across different right. people, and the other is that it's in practice, um, we, don't have, we don't collect very good data, even if it wasn't conceptually difficult. No, I, I think we collect very good data, actually. So I think it is the conceptual problems. So perhaps the deepest conceptual problem is, you know, if you imagine an Ethiopian peasant who lives on teff, and you try to compare him with a Mexican peasant that lives on beans and whatever, rice, right. I guess. I mean, if, if you get two sets of people who are living on orthogonal things, right. what basis do you have for comparing their 
what their standards of living. I mean, you could convert it to calories or protein or something, but you know, right. it, it, that only gives you a partial answer. So there's that thing that's underlying the thing. I think in practice, there's something that's slightly more difficult. Um, and, and if I refer to the ICP, that mm-hmm. stands for the International Comparison Program mm-hmm. that does these prices. And this is a tremendously well set up mm-hmm. international statistical exercise that's very well governed and is full of terrific professionals. And I should declare an interest. I'm on one of the technical advisory groups. So, but that also informs <laughs> me. It's sort of like. Um, Zvi Grilich has used to say that, you know, that I think one of his articles begins with this quote. He says, my father would never eat meatballs at home because he knew what was, what in, was in them. them right. And he would never eat them abroad because he, he didn't, didn't know, know what was in them. them right? um, so it's a little bit like that. But here's, here's I think, the crucial problem. Um, if you want to compare prices between one country and another, you want to compare the prices of um, comparable items. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you actually want to compare the prices of things that people commonly use. Right. So let me give you an example. I mean, in, in the United States, if you wanted a men's shirt, and this does go down to this level of detail. I mean, there are thousands of goods in this. It would be a shirt something like the one I'm wearing or the one you're wearing. Um, on the other hand, if you want to say Cameroon right. and you said, well, go and price a Brooks Brothers <laughs> shirt. Right, it would cost a fortune. It, it would cost a fortune, because, and you would only find it in the store where, you know, aid workers right. shop or the ambassador's shop, the expat shop, essentially. And it would be very, very expensive. On the other hand, if you said, okay, price a shirt in the United States and price a shirt in Cameroon, then the shirt in Cameroon doesn't look anything like the shirt in the United right. States, so you're not pricing comparable Right. quality. Right. So if you do it one way, you which is to get the com- the quality completely comparable, you overstate the price level right. in poor countries, which makes them too poor. And if you do it the other way, which is you just say buy a shirt, it's not comparable quality. And then the price levels are too low in poor countries. And in practice, we do both and then average them, then. Well, not really. They they try to. They've had this long attempt to label goods as to whether they're representative or not, okay. and that has not been very successful. And then some of those links depend. You know, the regional work they do is probably yeah. sort of okay because they're roughly comparable goods are in Africa and so on. But when you're comparing Cameroon with Japan, for instance, um, you know, or Bolivia um, with Russia or something, it's a real stretch. Right. And, um, and those comparisons in the end really do matter. Okay, so these international comparisons are, for the reasons you've just given, very hard to do. But you have a whole chapter about inequality in America. Right. Um, which, in a sense, abstracts from the problem of... Yeah, that's, that, that problem's gone away. Right. And um, here you have kind of an interesting <coughs> description of, of what's been happening to inequality in America. Um, tell us a bit about that. Well, a lot of things have been happening to inequality in America, and it's really becoming a front-burner issue, as you know, President Obama made this speech yesterday or the day before, mm-hmm. um, talking about this. And rightly, I think it's attracting an enormous amount of attention. Um, You know, there is this huge increase in incomes at the very, very top of the distribution, which has happened once before 
um, that we know about. It may have happened before, but in the Gilded Age, mm. at the end of the 19th century, also a period of great technical change, mm. followed by a whole bunch of people who got incredibly rich on oil and railroads and things like that, tobacco. Um, and, um, you know, this sort of parallel between those right. two periods, which is right. sort of interesting. And in the first period, it was sort of undone by the progressive movement, essentially. Yeah. And you could argue that that's beginning to happen here. I don't know. Um, what do you have in mind? The, the Occupy Wall Street movement? Or? Well, no, I think it would be something broader than that. I mean, it was, I mean, this is, none of this is in the book, but it, yeah. it's an interesting topic just the same. Um, the people who did a lot to undo it um, or who led the progressive movement were Teddy Roosevelt, right. um, William Taft, and later Woodrow Wilson. Um, and those are not Occupy Wall Street types, right. though the Occupy Wall Street equivalents were there right. and were making a lot of noise and all the rest of it. So, you know, they were big redistributionists like Brian and so on. Um, and um, But it was people in the center, um, you know, and right. Roosevelt's about as patrician as you could get. And they're from the Republican Party and all the rest of it. So it's a very interesting story. I mean, But you're sounding more optimistic now than I felt you were yeah, in the book. Yeah. Because in the book, you're a bit wistful about the, the, the possibility of a kind of toxic political situation yeah. of... of plutocracy taking over from democracy that as you have a concentration of economic power you end up with a concentration of, of political power that makes undoing the inequality more and more difficult. Yes. So I think that warning needs to be said and um, I think economists have tended to be a bit blasé about this and they say things like we understand the market, this is the market sort of idea. Right. The market's giving rewards to all this new innovation, this is what we want. And I wouldn't go all the way with Joe Stiglitz in saying that, you know, all this inequality is bad, but there are bits of it that I think are very worrying. So let's, let's unpick that a bit, because, I mean, one, cons one reason for inequality is if part of the population, if the population is becoming richer and, and it happens to some people sooner than to other people, then you'll get a kind of time effect where right. you get a temporary rise in inequality. And that's and one that's, of the big themes in the book. Yeah. Right, and that's basically a good thing, right? That's just, it right, just it may time. not be temporary. I mean, right. parts of it may be, you know, so you, it could have big incentives to people to get educated, Right. And lots of people get educated. It's a good thing. But there are lots of people who may not be qualified to get educated. Right. You know, so they lose out, and that would be permanent. Unless we find some way of compensating them in some other way as part of you know, redistributing to them, basically. Yeah, but the, the mechanism itself would not just help them. You'd have to do something about right. it. But, but then there's an unhealthy kind of inequality, with, you know, rent-seeking of various kinds, yes. where, where powerful people... Uh, are able to, to essentially prevent economic change right. and capture rents themselves. So there's two parts to that. One is the thing that Joe writes about a lot, which is the, the misalignment of incentives so that the private and social incentives may be very different from one another. So you think if Steve Jobs gets rich, that's sort of okay because we want him to right. do all the goodies that he's done for us sort of idea. Um, on the other hand, if Lloyd Blankfein gets rich, we're much more suspicious. Right. Right. And you could argue it's just because we don't understand what Lloyd Blankfein does. But my guess is that, you know, if you really understand what goes on on Wall Street, a lot of it is not very socially productive. And what's your sense of, of where we are with the growing inequality in Western economies today? That it is, is a large part of this kind of the inequality you need to drive to create incentives for people to get better education and, and raise their productivity, or is a large part of this 
Some well, I, I, I'm not sure I would take a single thing and then parse it up. Um, right. And one of the things I try to say in the book is very different things are happening in different parts of the income right. distribution. So our obsession with the Gini coefficient or something is not terrifically um, productive. And there's all this interesting work on polarization, for instance, this idea that uh, a lot of the people who are poorly paid at the very bottom of the distribution are actually not outsourceable and are not under much threat. Right. Um, and if you think of people who work in nursing homes, for instance, looking after the increasing population of old people, um, you can't outsource them. Right. Uh, and so their wages are relatively protected. But to come back to the, what we were talking about, about the rent-seeking and all mm. the rest of it, um, I think there are differences. So, you know, in this technology sector, which is very competitive, um, you can think of it as a model of, uh, through a model of tournaments, for instance, where people invent something, they get monopoly rents for a while, but then something else comes in and sweeps them away. The places where that doesn't seem to happen very much is in the financial sector, um, where you really worry, um, and the health sector, um, and where the lobbying powers are enormous, of both of those places. I mean, I think both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were very slow to build lobbying empires in, right. in Washington, for instance, whereas the healthcare industry and the um, and the military, of course, uh, you know, which has not been so much in the focus recently because it's fallen out of favor a little bit. But I, I think those are places where the market incentives are really very, very weak um, and where the social and private incentives are very poorly aligned with one another. And healthcare, we come back to this again, it's just a very difficult sector to handle um, because you can't really let the market handle it. I mean, you could outlaw insurance and let everybody just go into the market, but we don't want that. You're listening to Development Drums, and my guest is Angus Deaton talking about his book, The Great Escape. In this final section, we'll talk about Professor Deaton's argument in his book that aid is harmful and that donors should spend aid for developing countries, but not in developing countries. You can find out who's coming up on Development Drums on our Facebook page. You can normally also suggest questions for me to ask future guests. Unfortunately, I forgot to bring along my notes for this discussion with Angus Deaton, and that means I don't have a note of the great questions that people suggested I should put to him. I hope that won't discourage you from suggesting questions for future guests. So this this actually takes us quite naturally to the third section, which is international inequality and foreign aid. And I'm going to ask you in a second to tell us what you think about foreign aid, which is not very complimentary. But is there a parallel about the idea that globally we have a toxic political problem, which is that wealthy nations are able in various ways to control the rules of the game in the same way as wealthy citizens are within the United States or the United Kingdom able to um, lobby for um, rules that um, continue to to benefit them at everyone else's expense. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of what we do at the Centre for Global Development is think about how the trade rules work or how migration (laughs) rules work. Do you think there's a, a, a global toxic politics that we should worry about? Yeah. I mean, I, the parallel is certainly there. Um, and, you know, I very much like that part of the Center for Global Development's work, which I think is very important. And I'm going to wrap that in a minute into what right. I think about aid. Um, there is, however, a major difference. And, and 
which is important in all sorts of ways mm -hmm. between international and national. Mm -hmm. So within a nation, people are sort of bound together in a system to which they have both responsibility and which provides responsibility right. to them. So, for instance, you could say that national inequalities are unjust in the sense that they violate the social contract. Right. You know, I have to pay my taxes. So if I don't get my day in court, you know, I have to obey right. the laws. Right. If I don't get my day in court, there's an injustice. If I don't get my fair share of this pie to which I'm contributing willy-nilly, that's an injustice. None of that applies internationally because there is no overreaching international contract right. between nations. And I think that's a very, very important distinction. And is that a necessary fact that there's no in international contract between us as citizens? I mean, could there be? Or? I don't think so. I think that would bring an injustice of its own, um, which is that these peoples are too different um, for a global authority to be anything other than a tyranny. I mean, but we Rawls do have is, some global social contracts, right? No, we, have, we, have an, we have a global contract on human rights, for example. Yeah, but what does it mean? Not very much. Um, because there's no central authority that's in, charged with its enforcement. It's the same with the Millennium Development Goals. I don't think they're quite hot air, to use right. T.N. Srinivasan's <laughs> term. But there's a lot of it is just posturing, right. because no one's actually charged with implementing. But we do things. have, for example, the World Trade Organization that does... Yeah. Okay, so let, let me come back to that. Right. So you have these international organizations, which are sort of quasi-things. But there's no central redistributive organ in the way that there is with the well-functioning national right. government. So the, the parallel that you drew between, you know, toxic politics I think is right, but, you know, you can see these parallels going on, but I think they're different because of the lack of an international right. contract in right. the way that there's a social contract. So I think that's very important. It's also very important when I come to think about aid, right. because often people are argue, think that, and this worried me a lot in writing it, that a lot of the right-wing argument against domestic welfare is that it creates welfare dependence and that people, if you look after them too well, won't exert their incentives or whatever the problem is. Um, I don't have a position on that. You know, I mean, you could argue that until you're blue in the face. But this is not what I'm talking about here because this money is... What I'm worried about is the effects of aid on domestic government and domestic governance and aid actually undermining this social contract between government and the people without which countries can't function. So that's my central government, my central argument about the problems of aid. And it's nothing to do with this argument about, you know, creating welfare dependence for individuals. So, I mean, although there is something of a parallel, which is that governments um, in receipt of foreign aid don't have an incentive to do the things they would need to do domestically. Yeah, but that's to, governments, not, right, not, not people. people right. So, so, that, so that's a clear, huge difference. This is, so this is a, something of a parallel with the resource curse yes, idea. That, that governments that, that can raise money without um, having to have a relationship with their citizens uh, then don't govern in the interest of their citizens. That's, Why would they? Yeah. Right. So, and so I think that parallel is, is pretty... Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's pretty strong. So you right. think that, that by giving aid, that, that that's just... Or giving this sort of aid, yeah. So aid from government to government. Mm. Is that your... What do you mean by this sort of aid? 
Okay, so we have to go back there, but this is to do with, you could spend a lot of money doing these international public good things, right. which would make the world a much better place. So finding a new vaccine or making... Yeah, making, so um, people say to me sometimes when I've talked about the book, you know, if I were to give you $5 billion to help poor people in the world, would you just burn it? And I say, no, I wouldn't. I, you know, if I'm in Washington, I say I'd take the red line up to Bethesda and right. I'd start a whole new National Institute of health um, within the system, which would look at diseases like, you okay. know, tuberculosis, okay. malaria, and so on. So aid for poor countries, but not in poor countries. Exactly. So th that's Bhagwati's distinction, and I subscribe to that. So th there's lots of things that CGD is pushing for that I entirely agree with, and that costs money. It would be rightfully classified as aid, you know, and I'm all for it. Right. So that I'm, I'm not against helping poor people in poor countries. Um, and I think you'd have to be out of your mind not to accept that moral right. imperative. I right. mean, I think it's incredibly strong. Um, but it's the deleterious effects of giving money in. So let's say, and, and I think this is not as clear in the book as it might have been, um, which is uh, there's a very natural implication that if you could give money directly to the citizens, it would not be a problem. Right. And I think that's wrong. Um, and I think giving money to NGOs or giving money, for instance, through people's cell phones right. to people. So when I was at the World Bank um, the other day, um, my discussant argued and said, okay, now that we have the technology, you know, we have all these biometrics, we can identify everybody, we can give them money directly, and this problem of giving money to the government goes away. So here's, here's a counterexample to that. Um, one of the worst situations of foreign aid in recent times is what happened in Goma. Right. Um, so you've got all these um, Hutus murderers who are fleeing from Kagame into eastern DRC, um, and they're living in and around Goma. Um, and so there's a big humanitarian emergency because they don't have food and water and all the rest of it, and they have their families with them and all the rest of it. So then the aid agency, um, both bilateral and NGOs and everything, come in in huge amounts. And it becomes clear after a month or two that probably about two-thirds of the money is going to rearm these guys who are mm -hmm. in training camps talking about eliminating the Tutsis who they refer to as cockroaches and going back and finishing the job. So the aid agencies are financing mass murder, essentially they're financing genocide, and pretty soon the best of them go away. So MSF mm -hmm. leaves first, though it was roundly castigated. That's by the yeah. yeah. Um, and I think Save the Children and Oxfam eventually, but you know there are new NGOs coming in right. in huge numbers. So let's say that all of these women and children had cell phones. Right, we're being given cash transfers. And we're being given cash transfers. Do you think that would solve the problem? Not for a minute, right? And the problem, and Duncan Green in his book about poverty and power mm. talks about this too. The problem is that poor people don't have any power. Right. So if you give them money in a situation in which they're under the control of a government or an army or someone else that doesn't have their interests in heart, at heart, you know, it's less direct than giving it directly to the bad guys, but, you know, they can get it. Anyway. Right. So you're describing quite an extreme situation. Yes. I mean, you know, if you take a country, if you think of Rwanda today in Rwanda itself, um, you know, there's one point of view, which I think is what you're articulating, which is that by providing aid to Kagame, we make it less likely that Kagame will 
feel forced to enter into some kind of social contract with yep. his citizens. Is that? Yeah. And you think that would still be like true if we were providing cash transfers to Rwandan citizens? Well, um, I think, that as, as you pointed out correctly, the Goma example is the extreme example. Right. But, you know, as, as philosophers do, you take extreme sure. examples to illustrate a point. And the point is the lack of control. Right. Right. So you have to argue on a situation by situation case, um, you know, how much... So if the government really has complete administrative control, which of course it probably doesn't because of lack of state capacity that we've talked about at all, it'll certainly find ways of sucking those resources out of the people. Right. Right. But won't, isn't, we call that tax, right? I mean, won't that begin no, no, to no, create a tax, social contract? No, well, but the social contract is not... The social contract is um, you give me money and I'll give you services. The social contract is not those foreign NGOs give you money and you hand it over to me, buddy. You know, so which, which is what you'd be talking about here. Now, well, that's quite a subtle distinction. I mean, no, I don't think it's subtle at all. I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be sort of obvious. If, if, if you've got a principal agent problem in which the guy in charge is sort of exploiting these guys right. and has them nailed to their participation constraint, as we used to say in the literature, then there's no way giving money to them is going to benefit them. One of the examples I give is, let's say someone comes to live next door and they belong to some extreme weird American cult in which, you know, the men get everything and the women are just held to, you know, they're given enough food um, so they can have sex with this guy but otherwise live a totally miserable life. Then, you know, giving, going in there and giving the woman some money is, is not going to do anything to resolve that situation. I mean, another story is, you know, when the UNDP for the nth year in a row declared that Sri Lanka, not Sri Lanka, Sierra Leone was the worst country in the world, you know, was at the bottom of the Human Development Index or something. There's a huge party. Right. (laughs) Right, because it's guaranteeing the aid will come in for another year. But nonetheless, so on on the negative side of the ledger, and this is very important and and we can debate um, when and how it's important, but let's accept that there is this uh, at least significant risk that providing um, aid either to citizens or to governments will um, weaken progress towards an effective social contract between right. the state and the state, right. and that's an important part of the development process. Yep. On the other side of the ledger, we have great examples of how provision of aid has vastly improved people's well-being. I mean, you can think of the number of people currently with access to antiretrovirals. Yeah, that's the very, very large numbers of people, you know, kids being vaccinated, for example, um, against um, you know, easily preventable diseases, the very large rise in childhood immunization. Yep. So these are, these are huge well-being improvements yep. for a large number of people. Yep. And you're very clear, as I hear you, that the negative impact on the social contract outweighs no i never positive. said that okay yeah, i so. didn't say that i said that um well isn't that isn't don't you have to think that to conclude that we should stop giving aid well um yes um no but i mean it, it, you can't pick off a particular intervention and say this is the best intervention and you're arguing against stopping everything and therefore you're against stopping that okay. i mean i'm talking about an average which is i think if we stopped the world would be a better place. That's not to say that you can't identify interventions, okay. of which the antiretrovirals is probably the leading example, um, where um, 
you know, the net effect is positive. So just to be clear, would you go on paying for antiretrovirals or not, if it was up to you? um, I would not, but only in the long term. So uh, here's the argument, and it's important to get this right, because you've identified a really good issue here, Um, which is that, um, so it's clear there's an immediately large benefit, and, and you can identify other aid programs for which that's true. It's also true that if you stop that now, a lot of people would die who would otherwise be alive, and you don't want that to happen. The main thing to argue, though, is that the undermining is still there, right? right? Um, because um, countries should design their own health systems according to the preferences of their people, and they should not be being dictated by the Gates Foundation or the World Bank or someone else who has their own priority. Um, one example where this came home to me was there was a debate, I think in a Canadian election, I'm not absolutely sure about that, about a decade ago, um, about whether Canadian aid should be used more for HIV and less for child health right. versus vice versa. Right. This is not something that should be decided in Ottawa. you know. So what I would do, I think, in the case of the HIV thing is I'd say, if I were dictator, which I'm not, um, we'll do this for another 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, we won't do this anymore, right? So that then these people then have 10 years to agitate, to work on that contract. And my model for that is what happened in South Africa during Mbeki and afterwards, which is you get enormous action groups, you get people who are very angry, they press for this and so on, and then sooner or later you finish up with the health system that the country wants. Because you can't really deny that. I mean, you can't run someone's health service from the outside forever any more than you can run their government from the outside forever. So the the way I would deal with that problem is by giving this 10-year horizon and then encouraging people you know, to the extent that you can encourage them to demand the sort of health service but, that they want. These are the people who, in your analogy, were the imprisoned yep. wife with no power. Yep. And you're essentially saying to them, right, you have 10 years to figure out how to escape these shackles. No, but I mean, I'm saying here's the imprisoned wife with no power. We're giving her money, right, right. which is essentially being used by the husband. Well, actually, in that case, we're giving them antiretrovirals. And unless the husband himself has HIV, right. then that's no use to him. Right. So, you know, you could say you're doing her some good, but on the other hand, he's taking a large part of the tax off of us. Um, So then you say, well, we can't go on doing this forever because the moral impression, any more than the Swedish government or or Oxfam or MSF could stay in Rwanda, you know, I mean, it's not in, in Goma. I mean, they were helping those women and children, but they just decided that um, the ethical downside of this was just too large relative to do this. So my compromise for this is is to, you know, give a time period and then say we can't do this forever because, you know, in the end this has to come from within. But, you know, I wouldn't fight that too hard because, you know, here, if you want a modest proposal that would come out of my book... (laughs) Um, you know, what I would say is, and you might even be able to get some international accord on this, that no government in the world should get more than 25% of its government revenue from abroad, okay. right? And, you know, that I think would make the world a much better place. And at the same time, <laughs> I would spend a lot of aid money on doing the four things, you know, right. the things that CGD pushes. Right. Let me just go back one more to the telephone thing. I always think that the 
Kenyan example of the M-Pesa and right. this, this great thing that's currently the fad among all development economists that, you know, you can give these money by telephones. I find it very amusing because, you know, Moy got rich by ripping off the telephone right. companies right. in the old days. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before they find a similar way of doing the same thing with the cell phone companies. I mean, why would you think this scheme is impervious to predation by predators who are in charge. But it, it, may, be, it may be more impervious. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it clearly for is. For example, yeah. the move towards budget support um, back in the 1990s right. was an attempt to try to find a way to give aid in a way that was um, yep. more consistent with the social contract. The idea was we give, we'll give money to governments and they will then be accountable to their people for their public expenditure allocation choices. Now, I think lots of people think that has well, proved, that's, proved I think disappointing. That's stupid right? because, uh, but, but it was an effort to No, but it's only half the story, right? Because they, they don't have to raise that money from people. Right, so they, do, so they don't have tax at that point because they're... Uh, but who says they're acting in the interest of their people? I mean, a well, lot of them are clearly not. But many of them are subject to election and, many, and there are other kinds of... Yeah, of there, there's a range of ...domestic things. processes. Now... Yeah. So, so the issue is, is there a way at all to provide aid in a way that either minimizes the harm to the social contract or which actually um, actually helps sustain it, and helps, helps accelerate it? Well, I, I, or, I, I, or is it, by, as it was, by definition? I think it's not, by definition. I mean, I, it's not definition, it's by argument, right. you know, that there just is. You, you can either have a social contract, you can't have a social contract, but you can't have it both ways. You see, and, I mean, you accuse me of arguing from an extreme, which was my antiretroviral yeah. example. You see, I think you're also arguing from an extreme, which is your Goma camps. There are lots of countries where there are governments that are more or less trying to do the, something for their people, but they're not as effective as they should be. They're not moving as fast as they could be. They have constraints. I mean, they have toxic politics too. Um, they're having to deal with elites who are resistant to change and so on. And yeah. the question is, in those contexts, you know, if you take Ethiopia today, lots of problems with civil society space and democratic accountability, but also a government that pretty much does spend money uh, when it gets it on educating poor people and improving the quality of their health and giving them access to water and food. And a social safety net alone, you know, they they are running the world's largest safety net program. So in that context, where yes, you would like the government to change in a more democratic and a more accountable direction, but you also have a sense that that when that government has money, they do spend it on things that improve people's well-being, and are gradually building up healthcare systems and education systems and and food security systems and so on. I, I don't think the track record on this is very good. I mean, you know, that I've heard this argument over and over right. and over again for 50 years. And you come back to the bar thing. You know, if, 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 if you know, the countries know what they're doing, they don't need aid. And also, aid is tiny now. I mean, if that argument were true in the 50s or whenever Barr was arguing this, it's true in, you know, many, many times over now because the aid numbers are so tiny relative to what's going along in the world, except in a few African African countries. But that's where the harm, exactly where the harm is being done. Um, And I think Ethiopia is a terrible example. The guy that died last summer or whatever, you know, I mean, seems to me just a criminal. I, I think any complicity with him was a disaster. You know, I really do believe in human freedom. And I think, um, 
playing with these guys is just the worst possible thing that we can do. It's like playing with Mugabe. It's like playing with Mobutu. And, you know, sure, they did something or the alternative is worse. But I'm just tired of these arguments. But I guess it's an odd argument to say we shouldn't try and affect these things from the outside. It's nothing. It's not our problem. We, We can't change. We're making it worse. Right, we're making it worse, and we can't change a process that ultimately has, has to happen from within. And I, so I'm buying the premise that mm-hmm. change when it happens will happen from within. What I'm, what I'm pushing against is the idea that sitting at the outside and saying what you, re- what you guys really need is freedom and democracy and accountability, um, and that ought to come, you know, that ought to be given higher priority than... Um, spending money on health and education and water and food isn't a form of deciding from the outside how change happens, right? I mean, you're you're essentially substituting your judgment for theirs, from in this case for medicine. No, always I'm not substituting my judgment for them. I'm saying I don't want my taxpayers in my country to help this guy you know, throw his opponents in jail and murder people and all the rest of it. I don't want to be complicit in that, nor do I think we ought to be. And also, all of the things, this contract we want, we're undermining it all the time, and we're slowing down the process in which it happened. Does it and also feel like we shouldn't buy oil from Saudi Arabia? Um, I think you could get very close to that argument, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, that's... Uh, because in that sense... No, but then we're, then we're very close to... And I think, you know, we need to have a serious debate about those sort of issues. Um, I think buying oil from Saudi Arabia has done enormous harm to the world and done enormous harm to us. And, you know, the, the consequence of fracking may be that we <laughs> may have the luxury to take that position. Um, but, I mean, I do think they're very... I mean, Thomas Poggi has written very well about this, right. and um, my friend um, Leif Buenar, um in London, um, who, uh, who's now at Imperial College, and he's writing a book College. about... The, uh, King's College, yeah, yeah. that's right, sorry. Um, and he's writing a book about this, right. and I, I think that's, that's a debate we should certainly be having, which under what circumstances should we buy commodities from regimes that we don't like. But that's very much the for rather than the in, you know, because uh, you know, buying commodities from odious regimes is exactly the same as applying aid in, in my way of thinking about yeah. what it does to people. The thing about, I mean, my sense of what's happening in the bank, for instance, and it's along the lines you were talking about, is that, you know, having worked through these fads, you know, which came and go over time, they've actually at last come to confront the truth of the matter, which is this is a political issue. You know, this yeah. is not a technical issue. This is, you can't bypass this by doing health care and not worrying about him throwing his friends, his, his enemies in jail. Um, and that, so they're now thinking along the lines you were talking about, which is how can we improve governance? How can right. we help them improve governance? And to me, that's a nonsensical right. statement. I mean, I think once you've got to the heart of darkness in here, you sort of realize that this cannot be done and, you know, you've got to sort of let them go on with it. On the other hand, I mean, I can see that you might make arguments around the margin. So there are parts of governance at very low levels in which technical assistance might really work. I was talking to Jishnu Das the other day about, you know, health clinic inspectors, for instance. And, you know, that's something that, 
you, you might be able to say, well, here's a really good way of doing this, or how you might you make incentives work in the police force or something. I mean, there's things like that where countries can clearly learn from one another. And, you know, in my view of the world, I would convert the World Bank into a large consulting organization, which would compete with McKinsey or Gallup or whatever um, to provide solutions to problems like that. But it's it's got to, the demand for that has really got to come from the outside. So uh, last question on, on this, and, and then we'll wrap up. But I, I just want to press you a bit. I mean, you've always struck me as being someone who is very careful with numbers, with, mm-hmm. with evidence and statistics. And it feels to me that this section of the book is a, um, a kind of cry of exasperation about the aid industry that isn't as well evidenced as I would, you know, mm-hmm. as I associate uh, with you. No, I think that's a fair point. Uh, um, I think the question is, though, because it is an empirical question, right? There's clearly a theoretical possibility that aid is doing harm yeah. to the government. I think of it's countries. one of these big questions in which empirical evidence is not likely to help very much. And I thought about that because what you say is exactly right. Um, you know, first of all, people have been running cross-country regressions up right. the kazoo. Right. And I thought about that stuff pretty carefully. And I don't discuss it particularly in those terms, but I do talk about it. Mm. So the bit about it that seems to me the most useful is just this fact that small countries get a lot more aid per capita than large countries, right. and you don't see that coming through in anything positive. Right. So that that's a piece of empirical evidence. I think that's about all that's come out of that enormous literature, which is otherwise... But you see, if you think about... And also people have talked about the undermining argument and there are papers looking at that. But the the trouble is it's it's sort of like these long-term questions, big questions like, you know, did provision of public pensions in the UK reduce savings, right? right? Now that's almost... empirically unanswerable because the lags are so long and there's so many other things going on. And if you think about it undermining government, it's it's a very long-term thing. Whereas if you think if you did this using regression analysis or however sophisticated and so on, you know, it's it's so... It's right. one of these mechanisms that's so slow and slow undermining that you're not going to pick it up. But let me offer you an alternative hypothesis, which is, uh, I think, roughly where my prior is, which is that um, internal political processes matter. They're internal, and there isn't much we can do about it from the outside, either positively or negatively. And that if we want to use aid to promote um, improvements in social economic um, transformation, then we're, we're probably not going to succeed and we're certainly not going to be able to demonstrate that we've succeeded. But we can demonstrate that aid makes a huge difference to people's well-being positively through things like providing them with antiretrovirals or food No, but you're hungry. cheating. I mean, you picked off, you cherry-picking, right? I no, mean, no, there's no, this I, five I, trillion dollars I, I, that's I was, been spent. I was, I was in the middle of a long list, right? Giving people access to food or water well, how about or Mabutu? immunization. You know, how about Mugabe? No, I mean, we, you know. we, we've spent a lot of money stupidly, but we have unquestionably, I mean, just the eradication of smallpox Ha- which you know was brought about through by the aid industry has massively improved millions of people's lives, and we have to count that positively. So if we think we're having roughly no effect on governance, but, um, your hypothesis is that we're having a negative effect. Uh, you know, maybe, but as you say, we don't have very good evidence for that. 
And then we've got this, on the other side of the ledger, massively well-evidenced, positive impact. Oh, but you don't have these that. I, I totally disagree with that. Well, we, we You're cherry-picking the top things. Right. No, right. but I mean, I'm saying right. on average it's had negative effects or no effects at all. Right, but if you were an investor in a... If you were a venture capitalist investing in firms, right, and, and some of them were a massive success and some of them came to nothing, right. you would still think that you were a successful investor. No, but but you said you but so you're, you're still cherry picking. I mean, right. you said some of them were a great success and some of them came to nothing. I'm saying some of them were a great success, some of them came to nothing, and a lot of them were a total catastrophe for human welfare. So on average, the rate of return but, is zero or negative. But the catastrophe is the thing for which we don't have good evidence, right? The successes we have good. We evidence We have lots for. of good evidence. Well, what are the Mugabe? But we don't know that we. So that's so that is the that is the area of disagreement, which is. Do we know that Mugabe would have been any different if we hadn't been giving aid to Zimbabwe? You don't really know that about HIV either. Um, and that is very much the leading case. You know, I mean, a lot of that was the Clinton administration, the Clinton Foundation pushing down the price of drugs. That's not aid. Um, you know, that's much more for than it is in. Um, the Green Revolution, which is Jeff Sachs' favorite, is for, not in. I mean, I don't think, you know, even the success stories are so clear, and there are many horrible disasters. And, you know, you like the Ethiopians. I think giving the money to whatever he was called. Medicine Yeah, is just like, you know, <laughs> it's like having blood on our hands. I mean, it's like the Iraq War. I mean, it's a catastrophe. Read what Tony, you know, read... Um, What's her name? Michaela Rong's book about Kenya and what Tony Blair was doing there. I mean, you know, these guys are whitewashing themselves for their sins with their own public. It's neo-colonialism. I mean, this is really horrible. It's ethically disgraceful. And I mean, I think we're just doing horrible things there. And, you know, the other thing one should read, I, I don't know if you know these books, but, um, you know, there's this wonderful book by Jim Ferguson called mm -hmm. The Anti-Politics Machine mm -hmm. about Lesotho. Right. And, you know, that for me is the epitome of what's going on in aid. I mean, we've we got these so-called experts coming in with some demented theory about how the country works, which has nothing to do with the way the country it's, works right. or the way It's an agricultural society. Yeah, right, right. it's a dual economy, <laughs> you know. Or Jim Scott stuff about seeing like a state and all right. these crazy schemes. I mean, the... And, and, you know, to me, perhaps the even bigger examples are, you know, McNamara, the great whiz kid at the Ford Corporation, you know, and then he's come to run the Vietnam War, and he tries to run the Vietnam War as a technical problem. You know, that's not a technical problem. It was a political problem, and it was just one of the great catastrophes. And then he comes and tries to run the world back to say, wait, no wonder the aid industry is, is, doesn't work. So... Um, and, and I guess the last one is this, um, the population control catastrophe. I mean, that was being done by people who thought they were doing good, and they will still tell you they're good. They would say exactly the same things you've just said, that we brought down the population, you know, population growth in India. You know, we went out there and cut a lot of tubes. This is a great success. This is bullshit. You know, this is just... It, it's all to do with us. We're just making ourselves feel better at the expense of poor people around the world. Angus Deaton, thanks very much for coming Thank on you. Development Drums. Thank you. Okay, very good.